Welcome to the Listen, Learn, and Lead series of interviews of extraordinary people and leaders here at Naval Post Graduate School. Today we have with us the privilege and the pleasure of Mr. Chris Manuel. Chris is the director of our Emerging Technologies Consortium, which identifies new research technologies among students and faculty and research associates that is relevant to the Navy and the Marine Corps. He's also the director of the new Central Coast Tech Bridge, the C2 Tech Bridge, that we will explore more in our interview. But it is sponsored by NavalX, and it is closely aligned with NPS and uniquely situated to become a leading Department of Navy and Department of Defense innovation hub. The C2 Bridge falls under the umbrella of the ETC and marries the, re the new research ideas that we have here to capital, companies, and other universities to make these ideas a reality. Most importantly, Chris is an NPS alum, graduating as the first Chief Warrant Officer of the Army or any service as, as a graduate here. And when he did his thesis in 2004, it was on the Surveillance and Target Acquisition Network, thereby establishing what we have come to know is, is his brilliance in this area of work. Chris, welcome. Thank you, ma'am. You have such a rich biography that we're going to, I think, walk through it as we talk about you and talk about the work that you've done all of these years. Let's start first with, with a personal question. You're one of 17 children and you have been a leader all of your life, but how did that part of being part of a big family, how did that affect your perspective? It's interesting you asked me that question because um, we did a, a, a family meeting last week and I was telling my story. And I had a picture of me, uh, maybe nine, 10 years old, you know, skinny kid, no shirt on, braids, and I've got this mean look on my face. And I'm telling my brothers and sisters this is always who I have been. You know, someone that's determined, always confident, feeling like I can do anything. And at the end of the, um, end of the Zoom meeting, I talked about why I always felt that way. So, I, so we moved to a town. We were the first black family to attend an all-white school uh, in the 60s, but I still always felt confident. When I zoomed the picture out, I had all of my siblings behind me. And I talked about the, the wind beneath my wings really has always been my siblings. I'm one of the youngest, I'm the 16th, um, but they always gave me this level of confidence that I can do anything if I worked hard enough and I was determined. Well, that's a, a great start to now thinking about your time in the Army. So you, you, you came in, in to the Army. Tell us a little bit about your journey there and then becoming a warrant officer and what you did in Special Forces in the Army. So I had a, a very interesting Army career, and this is part of what I talked about. I have been a person that um, have had a lot of freedom uh, throughout my time in the Army. I was always picked for kind of projects that uh, were considered very difficult for people to do. Um, started off, uh, was not in Special Forces, was at the uh, Second Armored Division in Germany. I met my wife there, so I'm really glad that I went there. Um, but I went into uh, Special Forces in 1990, and uh, I had actually planned on leaving the Army, but, but really found myself uh, in Special Forces. The mental and physical challenge I just made me thrive. 
One of the things that I did very early on was uh, I went to a warrant officer. I decided when I first went through, I wanted to be a warrant officer. And I told the guy, I don't know uh, what it takes in order to get there. I know I'm not qualified. What do I need to do? So he said, well, you're in language school. Focus on language. That's the first thing. So I focused on language. Um, my Portuguese was a 3-2 uh, plus to a point that Brazilians actually thought I was from Brazil. Yeah, sure. And that opened up so many doors for me. Uh, so I ended up starting um, demining in, uh, with the State Department in Mozambique, uh, Namibia. Uh, from there, uh, Namibia was the first country that was considered mine-free. I was the, uh, the non-commissioned officer in charge of that. That led to all these other things. But it really was language that started it. So now when you did the demining work, you had actually some uh, pretty distinguished work there because you had no casualties in all of that work, correct? Correct. So, correct. And that was actually rather rare at the time when, when trying to demine things that had gone for many generations. Did that begin to inform you about what kinds of things you could do with technology? It, it definitely did. I've always had an interest in technology. Uh, one of the things that they did with me uh, on a team is companies would come to me and ask me to take a look at their technology. They would have no, owner, no owner's manual or anything else, just play with it and figure it out. And I would uh, take things to, uh, at the time we owned uh, five acres outside of Fort Bragg, and I'd set these things up in the yard and became an expert <laughs> on it. So uh, each thing that I learned kind of built on the next one, and I was, uh, became kind of the go-to guy for technology. Well, I think it's important, and I want to make a note here because I was reading about a lot of your background, and I think it's important to know that you supervised the creation of the Namibian Defense Forces Humanitarian Demining Company and advised them during the demining operations, resulting in a 94% decrease in minefield in, uh, incidents, and again, without a single deminer casualty. That is quite the record. And I want to, to, to just note that because that is, is itself in the midst of your Army career, something about which to be very proud. Well, after you got your commission, you then uh, commanded a Special Forces A team. You want to talk about that a little bit, please? Uh, yes, ma'am. So my team was a uh, HALO team. Um, the battalion commander at the time knew me for demining. There used to be people from the State Department that would come to our battalion and they would always say they wanted to see me uh, because of what we did in demining. So when I came back, he actually put me on the same team, which is very unusual, and he said, I need you to fix your team. Um, so uh, he gave me uh, his guidance, and I said, okay, uh, I need to give you my guidance. Yeah. And he kind of looked at me, as like, and he said, you're the only guy that can come here and get away with that. And I said, well, <laughs> sir, you're asking me to do, you know, th this is kind of unusual, uh, there were a lot of things that happened with the team in Bosnia. So I asked for uh, a team sergeant uh, that I had. Uh, I picked at the time. Uh, I picked the leadership of the team. We took that team from being considered the worst to being the best in the group. And there's a picture that hangs in my office that uh, I use when I talk to people about leadership and what it means to me. I'm not in the picture. And I built the organization to a point to where all non-commissioned officers went and did what was considered the premier mission at that time in special operations without me. 
So you went from, you, you did work in Brazil, you did lots of work in Africa. Um, tell us about what you did though on the A-Team with Rover, what, with what we would call Rover, the Remote Operations Video Enhanced Receiver work. So Rover, I was, I've always been an ideas guy. Rover was one that, that actually kind of set things apart. So the story with Rover, um, I started uh, looking at uh, technology uh, long before that. Had a new company commander came in, uh, told me what we needed to do on our A-team. And I told him, you're the seventh rider to come in and sit in that saddle. I know what my team needs to do. You need to focus on your B-team. Well, uh, so the B-team is the company command. Uh, so within a week, I was taken off the A-team and brought to the B-team. And I said, well, what is this? Uh, you know, or is this a punishment because I was being honest with you? And he said, no, you actually know how to fix the problems, so I want you to fix it. Right, sure. He said, so I want you to find a way to make us the best reconnaissance unit within the Department of Defense. And I said, okay, how far can I run? He said, you can run until I tell you to stop. What's my parameters, right, left parameters? He said, you have none. Just make this happen. So I started to look at our mission um, in Iraq in the first desert storm, and a number of the reconnaissance missions were compromised. Uh, so I looked at, well, why did that happen? I had never been called on the ground, so I figured that well, these guys must have done something wrong. That wasn't the case. The problem was an equipment shortfall. They were asked to identify a target, but they couldn't stand far enough away from the target. Spotter scopes, uh, things like that, really hadn't changed much from Vietnam era. You can get a little farther away, but not the resolution that they needed. So I started to look at technology that was in adjacent markets to see if I could use it uh, on the ground. And I started looking at drones. Well, Predator was very successful in Bosnia, uh, so I got a chance to go out, talk to engineers, look at the capability was on there, and look at decoupling that capability from Predator to the ground. I briefed that to my battalion commander uh, February 28th, uh, 2001, said I needed $60,000, and he said too expensive. Um, I'll take that, yes, 2001. So I left, uh, so I used to deploy about 200 days a year uh, in and out of Africa, and then I went to be the liaison in Sakur um, when 9-11 happened. When that happened, I asked if I could relook this, and the answer was yes. Uh, so I got a chance to go back and work with Air Force Big Safari. Most people have never heard of 645th Material Command. These guys are, were stood up the same time that Special Operations was. Um, and a guy, uh, Bill Grimes, who has passed now, um, when I came there you know, with my beard and all mm -hmm. my kit, said, hey, this is what I'm looking at doing. Uh, there were five guys that sat on each side. And there was one guy who sat all the way to the left, but the guy to the right did all the talking. Well, the guy who did no talking was the guy who was actually in charge. And he said, I want to help you. So what he did was he brought in his lead scientist and the lead engineer for Predator. And the three of us worked on this together. And within four weeks, we had a capability that was able to stand 117 miles off a target, uh, be able to see what was going on in the target, because now I had a mission to go in and clear caves. So um, this was considered leap ahead. Yeah. Um, uh, some of the people from JSOC that I worked with said, yeah, this was in our roadmap, but we're looking at 15 years down the line, and then I show up in Afghanistan with it. 
So you, you then you go to Afghanistan and uh, you develop a network there for unmanned aerial vehicles. So then there's, there's, a, there's a constant thread here of you creating uh, um, a, a, a capability in response to a gap or a requirement, constantly doing that. Right. Tell us about what happened on the unmanned aerial vehicles and your creation of that in Afghanistan. So um, Anaconda started off yeah. and a friend of mine, uh, Stan Harriman, got killed. So the, the project that I had here was actually named after him. Surveillance and Targo Acquisition Network, Stan, was named after Stan Harriman. Uh, what I was looking at, uh, a number of things. 38 pounds of lightweight gear when you're already carrying 100 pounds is a little bit too much. But this capability was so good that Colonel Scotty Miller said, hey, we don't need you out here um, with a weapon. We need you back thinking of more stuff like this. Well, Scotty Miller is now the four star in charge of Afghanistan. But uh, I had met two professors from the Naval Postgraduate School while I was there, Gordon McCormick and Hi Rostein, and they had told me, hey, if you do another one of these, why don't you come to NPS and do it and leverage the professors and the students and companies that are tied into NPS and do the next thing. So I worked with the national team going after um, then the number two person in uh, Al-Qaeda, Al-Zawiri. Um, okay. I uh, uh, made a mistake and let him go uh, while Dick Cheney was watching. <laughs> um, and I came out of there thinking that, you know, I'm done. I mean, that I, yeah, I, I really failed. Uh, so Scotty and I flew out. Uh, I ended up coming back. And when I got back, uh, everyone was, how did you do this? Where did you get this? Yeah. And what do you want to do next? Um, so uh, General Lambert, uh, when I sat down with him, was the Special Forces Command commander, I told him I wanted to go to the Naval Postgraduate School. And uh, Bill Grimes said he would give a million dollars for my work here uh, in order to advance what I was doing. So this was not just a, a detail from uh, the personnel shop. This was a very deliberate, purposeful, intentional uh, assignment based upon meeting some faculty uh, in Afghanistan and the work that, that they saw you doing and then coming here. So you come here and you apply the, the, the experience you had, the warfighting experience you had, the technology uh, prowess which, which you have, and then developed a product out of here that made a real difference for warfighters. Uh, yes, ma'am. So what I was really looking at was I was calling uh, the next version of Rover. Yeah. But what we, once I started attending classes and talking to professors and students and companies, the rover concept evolved uh, to almost what you, if you, in today's terms, think about a cellular network with no infrastructure that was able to do movie map displays, video, right. chat, right. all of those things. And that was done here. So my first experiment that I did uh, was out at the Marine Airport. Um, and I actually achieved what I came here to do within the first experiment. But uh, JSOC had people here and said, hey, we want to push this further. So we ended up doing seven experiments, which uh, in one year, uh, my thesis advisors at the time were Dave Netzer, who was the Dean of Research, John Arquilla, who is still here, and Alex Burdetsky, yeah. who is still here. Yeah. So the three of them were my thesis advisors. Uh, we went from something that was a concept when I when I first got here 
to actually a prototype that was ready to transfer by the time that I finished. Yeah, so we also have included Dr. Bordeski in these interviews, and so uh, there will be a very good, good connection there. So you go from the Army, and you do this great work at, N at NPS. Now you're out. And uh, what are you doing with now? You, you now become a business leader. So you've put a, away your uniform and your rucksack, and, and now you are wearing you know, open-collar button-down shirt and a jacket, and now you're going out there with business and entrepreneurs. You had two actual creations in that time frame. Why don't you, why don't you please let us know about those? Yes, ma'am. So, so, so what really happened with me, what I would say the transformation from a guy who was going in and clearing caves to run an engineering organization in San Francisco happened here at, at NPS. Uh, I learned to look at things differently. I learned to think of things in a system way and how things work together that allowed me to take things from a concept all the way to products and production. And that's what I ended up doing. So both of those products, uh, what I did here with Stan, actually turned into something called, uh, it was Tactinet is what we called it, and it was also called THDD, the Tactical Handheld Digital Device. So that was a programmer record that, uh, that came out of here. Uh, and the system that came out of here um, was no longer called Stan or Tactinet. What was deployed with, uh, um, in Afghanistan and in Iraq was actually THDD. So you then, uh, of course, had worked with the Sierra Nevada Corporation, and is that what you did with them? Uh, that's what I did with them, but I actually started, uh, I went to a startup initially called Interfor. Okay. Uh, so I met them, they were, when I was here, there were 14 companies that worked uh, on the project. Ten of them offered me a job. Uh, I said no. I, I had planned on staying for 30 years at least. The more I said no, the more they upped the offer. And uh, General Lambert said, hey, you got to get out. So I went, ended up going to a startup. That startup ended up getting acquired by Sierra Nevada Corporation. Okay. So Now, and then how did you get involved with creating Cyber Endeavor in 2011? So you're, you're out of the Army. Right, and you're doing other things. How did you develop, how did you become the author and the creator of Cyber Endeavor, which is of course an NPS program, but you began this. Yes, ma'am, so I, I have always, uh, once, ever since I graduated from here, I've always reached back to here. So what uh, we created with the field experimentation and STAN um, included operational art, uh, industry, and academia. And I wanted to do the same thing with cyber. Uh, look at a way for us to be able to take on the most difficult problems in the cyber realm and get our unit involved all the way from the lowest level, hands-on keyboards, all the way up to the two-star division commander. So that was Cyber Endeavor. Now you also have at the same time in parallel been part of the Army cyber um, uh, team. Why don't you talk about that out of West Point, out of the military academy? Yes, ma'am. So, so um, when I left here, um, uh, kind of unusual for someone to graduate and go to industry, I was actually sent here to do a project, so I was, a, I was allowed to leave. Uh, but I became an Army Reservist. I still mm. uh, felt a need to serve, but also understanding problems really came from my Army career. My green suitor side really is what made me successful on the industry side because you intimately understand 
what the end user needs. So as you work these issues with TechBridge, what are you working on right now that really shows promise? We, we have two projects that I think are really interesting that I think, uh, one, we're enhancing education. I, I, in fact, I would say we are super accelerating education with the student teams. But there's two of them that are going on. So one of them is taking a capability for object recognition and making that where it's autonomous and it's automatic. Uh, so we've got uh, four students, three special forces and one uh, Air Force special operations uh, that's working on a project that will take a drone um, and it will take the feed from a drone and we're building, uh, and, and when I say we, the students actually came up with this. This is not my idea. I just see the business side of it. So they came up with this idea of basically a black box that will work with a system and it will identify a weapon or an object and will, will cue the, uh, uh, the user to make them look uh, at the screen. So in special operations, especially on the Army side, you're talking about a relatively small number of guys you can't have someone continually looking at a screen. This will cue them. So by the students coming up with this, they actually have two prototypes that they're looking at. One that will go on the person, but when I talked about the build materials and how to advance this to actually get it across to a product, they are looking at uh, components that are, I would say, relatively inexpensive enough to where I could see this going to not only to the DOD, but also to police. And we also have uh, UK offering matching funds with this, so now you've got a second market. Now, if we get to a point to where we have international students or Five Eyes working with this, this would co potentially go to five different markets uh, at one point. And you would look at police departments. So. Looking at an investor saying, okay, well, would I invest in this? When you see that type of market potential, you will get private capital coming in that you normally wouldn't see. So that is being funded through O&R, and we're lining up funding from the UK. Yeah, we're also working on the, on the intellectual property piece of that, that piece of the structure there, too, to make that work also for the student and the faculty. Yes, ma'am, we're making sure that the students get credit right. for what they come up with. Right. There is a second one, and the second one is, um, we're, we are calling it, uh, for lack of a better name right now, both of these are being worked with uh, Alex Brodetsky and student teams. So this other one is Remote Render Safe, which is a robotic uh, arm that's developed by um, SRI International. Um, so they have this arm, and I was, because of my background with demining, this was the first thing I thought about, well, we can use this for rendering safe a unexploded ordinance or mine. Well, the students saw it and said, this can be used for telemedicine. So we are now shifting this mm. capability to a telemedicine capability. We've got three students that are working on uh, this project, are gonna write their thesis on it, and then there is a doctoral candidate PhD student that's coming in and he's already said, I'm going to do this on telemedicine. So Alex and I are looking at an architecture that takes a high technical readiness level satellite bus capability and put it on a dirigible with very low latency, much like what I had with my system that's here that will allow through haptics, uh, a surgeon or doctor to be able to do remote 
surgery on the battlefield. And we've got our PhD um, warfighters coming in to say, okay, well, this is how you would use it. But the technology that SRI developed, they really don't have a place for it market-wise. And by taking what we're doing here at NPS with the comms architecture, now is going to take that great capability and I believe accelerate that and get it out. This is another one that the UK is looking at uh, investing in and we're looking at matching funds for that, probably from private industry. That's great. And those are things we're working now. So you've heard it here first, uh, what I've heard for the first time also, but this is typical of Chris Manuel. Every time we talk, uh, he is coming in with some new ideas and he's always listening and always learning and always leading. And so we, I want to thank you, Chris, for being here for this interview. It's been terrific. I want to thank you for coming back and, and paying forward in many ways what, what, what you were able to uh, gain here and to be able to have us gain as an, as, as an institution. Again, my thank you for your leadership and for this time. We really appreciate that you have also been listening to this Listen, Learn, and Lead series, and we, and we look forward to seeing you the next time.